All right. Well, um, with my apologies, uh, this week Stan Tenen is going to be bringing the message. Uh, I can't preach every week, so uh, so this week uh, it's Stan, and uh, uh, c- completely joking. Those of you who are part of the church or you've been around, you know Stan deserves every bit of ribbing that uh, that I give him. Um, In all seriousness, though, um, there are few people that I hold in any higher regard than Stan Tennant. He's just an excellent guy. You know, I think I've said this before, but it bears repeating. It's always a little bit unsettling for a pastor when a former pastor joins your church. They are sometimes notorious for um, only wanting to do things the way they did them in their previous church. And having lots of advice and being uncooperative. It's just great character qualities that pastors often have. And uh, so um, Stan is one of the most humble people that I have ever met. And uh, having pastored for 13 years, he came here and he didn't give advice. He didn't, you know, give me a list of all the things we were doing wrong. Uh, He just rolled up his sleeves and got involved in the life of this church. And uh, serves faithfully. He is helping us along with some other men in the church to uh, increase um, our effectiveness and discipleship. And um, the Walking with Jesus classes have just been so beneficial to so many people. And uh, so I I very much appreciate and value Stan, uh, all joking aside. So why don't you welcome him as he comes to give us the message today. No? There, no. Okay, Brian said, you know, I didn't give him a list of things that needed to be fixed, you know, in his ministry and stuff. I haven't given him a list yet. (laughs) We're working in 1 Samuel. Uh, It's a a, a sermon series. It's a part of a series on the Old Testament, prophet and priest and judge, uh, known as Samuel. Um. You need to understand, as a pastor, you know, having been a pastor, you need to be a little careful about what you talk about, how you say it. Uh, you want to be challenging, but you don't want to be overbearing. You don't want to um, beat people up. You know, so there's always this balance. So Brian, I'm sure, you know, tries to tread that that thin line between challenging but being kind, and you want to push. But, you know, push not, not too hard. And after all, I mean, you all pay his salary. He can't lean on you too hard. <laughs> However, I have no such restrictions. <laughs> Consider me a hired gun this morning. <laughs> Estantino. Have, have Bible. We'll travel. So, brace yourself. Turn to the uh, 1 Samuel, if you're not there already. I don't title my sermons or lessons, but if I did, I could entitle this one, 
a discourse on the benefits of obedience to God seen in the lives of Samuel and Saul, which is way too wordy. So I'm going to go with, if, if I were going to title it, a pain in the butt. <laughs> but spelled B-U-T. Okay. And you'll see why. We need to set the context here for this story, where Samuel fits. When the tribes of Israel came out of Egypt, brought out by Moses, you know, spectacular, you know, the, the uh, ten plagues and all that, they eventually conquered the land that had been given to them, and the different tribal groups settled in the land. And many of you in the back of your Bibles, you can find a map that shows where the different groups were. Reuben, Issachar, you know, it's, it's... What we under, need to understand is, Israel as a nation did not exist at that point. There was no nation of Israel. There were tribal areas that were loosely linked by common ancestry. They spent some time fighting each other. That was the period of the judges. There was a confederation of 12 tribes that inhabited and had divided up what was called the promised land. And during the period of the judges, there's a cycle. If you read the book of Judges, there's a cycle. The people would fall into idolatry. They would be conquered by one of the surrounding countries. They would cry out to God. They would repent. God would raise up a judge, a, a, a leader, who would help deliver them. And then the cycle starts over again. And this goes on for 400 and some years as these tribal groups maintained their autonomy. And it was just, they functioned sort of like a loose confederation. Samuel is right at the end of that period. Samuel is the last judge. This is the transition period from a confederation of tribes, each with their own identity, where the, uh, an Israelite's identity would be tied to his tribe, not the country. There was no country. But that's going to change. They want a king. And a king means unification. A king means a capital. All this is going to start coalescing into an actual nation. But it's not there yet. But Samuel's the transition man for this. He is a towering figure in the Old Testament. At this point, the, tri- the tribes were little more than pagans. What did they know? What did they know about God? That their great, great, great something or other grandfather talked about coming out of Egypt. We're talking 400 years before. That's longer than the United States has existed. This is a vague memory. They're right on the edge of being absorbed by the surrounding countries. Everything that God had warned them against about not being, not marrying the other countries, people from the other countries, don't get involved in their religions, just keep your distance. All that had slowly crept down and crept down and crept down. At this point, the the nation of Israel, the people group of Israel, they were a little more than pagans. So you have a No common identity. It's just a confederation of tribes. There's no defined religion. There's no defined theology. There's no central religious leader. There's no central political leader. There's no central location or central building. They're surrounded by pagan nations that have seriously degraded religious practices, and they've been profoundly affected by their neighbors. This is really, really dark really dark time 
into this, God raises up Samuel, the last judge. He is God's man during this, this transition period. Now, just quickly, give you a picture. Just generate a picture. We're going to be looking. This is, this is big, um, big picture stuff today. Samuel is given as a boy to serve in the temple. Actually, the, the, the uh, tabernacle at the, uh, the shrine at Shiloh under the high priest Eli. Um, 2.11. The boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. He's working. He's not just hanging out. He's working. You go down just a little bit farther. Now, Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. The ephod is what is the outfit the priest wore. It's like a, it was like a, a uniform. So here's this little boy dressed up like a little miniature priest serving in the temple. Verse 21. The boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Now, the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. Years are going by. Okay. A man comes and pronounces judgment against Eli for all the corruption in Eli's under Eli's high priesthood. His his sons are behaving abominably, and, a, and an unnamed prophet comes and pronounces judgment. But here's part of the judgment: I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed ways. He's referring to Samuel. We don't know how old Samuel was at this point, but judgment has been pronounced against Eli. It says, you're on your way out. Irretrievably, irrevocably, you're on your way out. And Eli's successor is this young boy that has been raised up in the temple. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And the word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. But during this time, Samuel is actually sleeping. He's got like a little mat in the temple close to the ark. You remember the ark of the covenant, the gold box that had the, the Ten Commandments in it? That's where he's sleeping. There was no holy of holies and all that. That hadn't happened yet. That hadn't been laid out yet. So he actually lives and sleeps in the temple, in the shrine. Now, I want you to think about this. He's there to serve Eli. So in the middle of the night, the Lord calls Samuel. Samuel says, here I am, verse 5 of chapter 3, and he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. What does that little, that little picture tell us about Eli or tell us about Samuel? Hmm? He's obedient. He's ready to serve. He didn't stroll. He didn't walk. He jumps up and he runs. You called me. What can I do for you? What can, you know? That tells us something about Samuel. Tells us a lot about Samuel, even as a young boy. Again, we're trying to find a picture, get a little snapshot of Samuel. Samuel lay down until the morning, and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He's in charge. 
He's opening up the place in the morning before the people come in to offer their sacrifices. But he was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. God has spoken to him and pronounced judgment on Eli and Eli's house. And he's scared to tell Eli about it. He doesn't want to tell Eli about it. Verse 19, thus Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and the Lord let none of his words fail. And all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba. Dan was the northernmost city in the traditional boundaries of Israel. And Beersheba was clear in the south. So to say Dan to Beersheba is like saying New York to L.A. You know, it's the entire country. He had a reputation among all the tribes. He wasn't tied to one particular tribe. He was what we would call a national figure. Even though at this point there is no nation. He was recognized as a priest and as a prophet. And we'll see as a judge for all the 12 tribes. He's the only guy that is common to all of them. All of Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. What does that mean? Confirmed. Anybody? He was accepted, but confirmed means what? He had made some predictions. He had heard from God, and they came true. His accuracy, his hearing of God had been confirmed over and over and over again. He functions as the high priest for the 12 tribes. We're just, for the sake of time, we're going to skip down a little bit in chapter 7. You find out he's functioning as the high priest for all the 12 tribes. Things are starting to coalesce around this one person. Chapter 8. And it came about when Samuel was old. So we've just jumped over decades. That he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel. The name of the second was Abiah. And they were judging in Beersheba, way in the south. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Even his own sons were morally compromised. But what does that say about Samuel? Hmm? He wasn't a good father. What does it say about his honesty and his ability as a judge? Yes, his boys didn't follow in his ways. They were corrupt. They were dishonest, which implies what? Samuel is not. He is not corrupt. This guy is real. This is a top-notch person. This is a, this is a top-notch person. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. Everybody, all 12 tribes, all the leaders come to Samuel. He's the central figure. Chapter 12. He's, he's, um, he's an old, old man. If anybody's paying attention, just starting in verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, again, everybody, everybody has, um, they probably sent leaders. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to your voice and all that you've said. I have appointed a king over you, and now here is the king walking before you. But I am old and gray, and my sons are with you. Now listen to what he says about his own ministry. I have walked before you from my youth, even to this day, and here I am. Bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Who have I defrauded? 
Whom have I oppressed or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? And I will restore it to you. And they said, you've not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, he, meaning God, is a witness. What does this say about Samuel? Beyond reproach, incorruptible. Samuel was a priest, a true one. He was a prophet and a trustworthy one. He was a judge and an impeccably honest one. These previous verses, and there are others, you get a picture of this man. His character, his honesty, his obedience before the Lord. He was upright before the Lord in a sea of darkness. His own sons were compromised. This is an outstanding man of God in a very dark time. And the story contrasts Samuel's character with the corruptness of Eli and Eli's sons. The idolatry of the people will find out that they, they were keeping idols in their houses. They were getting involved in the, the worship of the idols of the countries around them. They were getting pulled down into paganism, into polytheism. Everything that God was trying to prevent was happening. Yeah, the idolatry of the people, the dishonesty and corruption of even his own sons, and we'll see the, dis- the disobedience of King Saul. Now, chapter 15, so we just saw a little picture of Samuel. Now, we'll look a little bit at Saul, because this is part of the contrast. This is what this book is doing. Chapter 15, verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. He's he's operating as a prophet. He's just speaking for God. Thus says the Lord, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he set himself against Israel on the way while Israel was coming up out of Egypt. Now here's where Saul gets his marching orders. Go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him. Put to death man and woman, child and infant, Ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Is that clear? Pretty clear. Take no prisoners. Apparently there was a little bit more to it because they weren't supposed to take any what what they would call booty. That has a different meaning now. But the... um, Yeah, there's a joke there and I'm not going to go there. Um, They weren't supposed to take any of the loot. And this point, don't ransack the houses, nothing. This is complete, utter destruction. Is it clear? Is it clear? Is there any nuance there? Any shades of meaning? Kill everybody. Take nobody, take nothing. It's supposed to be total destruction. Saul summons the people, gets the army together. So Saul defeats the Amalekites. And he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Is there a problem? (laughs) But he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. So he kills everybody, but he does capture the king. 
But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. They were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything that was despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Is there a problem? Saul comes looking for him after the battle. Or Samuel. Samuel comes looking for Saul. Verse, uh, we're in chapter 15, verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Good, you know, good news, Samuel. I'm your man. I'm God's man. I did what I want. Samuel goes, Then why do I hear sheep? Why do I hear oxen on the edge of a battlefield? Something's, he knew what was going on. Saul said, well, we brought them from the Amalekites. The people, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. See the little, the little twisting? I didn't do it, the people did it, but they did it with good intentions to sacrifice to your God. How could you find any fault with that? What's the problem? That's not what God wanted. That's not what he said. Samuel said, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Verse 18, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? You think he's got him cold, right? That Samuel, or Saul would go, "Eh, yeah, you're right. No, no. Saul says, well, I did obey obey the voice of the Lord, and I went on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag the king. And I utterly destroyed all the rest of them. But the people took some of the spoil and the sheep and the oxen and the choices of the things to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Again, he emphasizes that. Samuel says, the Lord has, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen is better than the fat of rams. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. Insubordination is as the sin of iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Divination, disobedience, rebellion, those are really, really harsh words. Coming from the prophet of God, this is a pronouncement of doom. You're done. You're done. Saul had obvious bad judgment and obvious disobedience in his heart. Earlier story, battle looming. Saul takes matters into his own hands. Samuel says, I'll come and offer sacrifices to God right before the eve of the battle. Wait seven days and I'll be there. Seven days, Samuel hasn't shown up. The soldiers are starting to get a little bit freaked out and they're starting to flee from Saul. 
Saul sees everything starting to fall apart on the eve of the battle. So he offers the sacrifices. What's the problem with that? Hmm? He's not a priest. It's not his place. He offers the sacrifices. Then, guess who shows up? Samuel comes walking in and says, what have you done? Now, listen, there's another, this is a little snapshot here of Saul. Samuel says, what have you done? Saul said, well, I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed times, and that the Philistines were assembling. Therefore, I said, the Philistines will come down against me, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. It's like, I just did it. I just did it for the people. I just, you know, I forced myself. I didn't want to do it. Yep. Samuel goes, you have acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord. And now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. What's he saying? It's not you. It's not you. All the excuses, all the but, but, but this, but this, but I just did it. You know, I just did it. Stop. Saul is essentially saying, I know, Samuel, that you, God's prophet, acknowledged by everybody, God's priest, said to wait, but I had a better idea. Right? I mean, paraphrase, but that's what it is. I had a better idea. It's the same thing on the other one, the previous story. I know you said to kill everybody and take nothing, but I had a better idea. So Saul's saying, I know that God said this, but I had a better idea. You keep getting from Samuel, or from, from Saul to Samuel, but... I know this, but you know what? Think about Saul from Samuel's perspective. What is he? He's a pain in the butt. Keeps throwing, but this, but this. He's a pain in the butt. Saul had forgotten, if he ever knew, the two great theological truths. There is a God. Anybody remember the next one? It's not you. If you don't agree with God, probably you're wrong. (laughs) Right? Saul's not operating there, and that's why God cannot leave him as king. He's a loose cannon. He's too dangerous. He will not listen. He will not obey. He makes excuses after excuses. And God says, I'm done. I'm done. Obedience is better than sacrifice, literally or figuratively. If you know what God has called you to do, you really ought to do that and not make excuses. Obedience is better than whatever you might substitute. There is a God. It's not you. God says to Saul, I want you to do this, and he can't do it. He won't do it. God says, I ask you to do one thing, one thing, and you can't pull it off. 
Now, this is a historical narrative. This happened approximately 2,400 years ago. These are historical people, historical places. You can get maps out, find all those locations. History references these different people. This is history. But it happened on the other side of the world. It happened 2,400 years ago. Plus or minus. Actually, no, it's more than that. This is a completely different culture, completely different situation than your life and my life. Israel, the nation of the, the people of Israel coming out of the period of Judges doesn't look anything like what, how we live. So does this story have anything to do with you and me? Is there anything we can pick up out of this? As different as it is, what's not different? God and the human heart. What can I learn? Let's think about what we can learn. It's easy to look at Saul and say, he was told what God expected. He knew what God expected. He had no excuse for not doing it. Right? Boy, what a screw-up he was. What a pain in the butt he was. I was working on this sermon earlier this morning, and I was thinking about Samuel and Saul and about God and disobedience and obedience. And I was thinking, boy, that Saul is just really a screw up, you know? What a pain in the butt. And then I started crying. Daniel's not here, Saul's not here. So who's the screw-up in my story? I have no excuse. I'm the screw-up. I'm the pain in the butt. And so are you. We all do the same thing. We all say, but... Well, I know this, but... Obedience is a big problem. It has always been a problem for the human race. Will, until Jesus returns. Jesus even calls people on this. You can say, well, we're not part of the Old Testament. You know, the nation of Israel and the people and the, and the prophets. and all. Okay, fine. Let's bring it down to New Testament times. Let's bring it down to the new covenant that we live in. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, but don't do what I say? Same issue. It's the exact same issue. People go, oh yeah, God is the Lord. And then they completely ignore what he said. Saul, oh yes, I... Why do you call me Lord, but don't do what I say? In the Great Commission, Jesus tells his disciples, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, anybody fill in the blank? Teaching them to observe, meaning... Obey all that I have commanded. Still an issue. It's an issue in my life. It's an issue in your life. I'm the screw up. You're the screw up. Here's some of the things that we might be saying to ourselves. I know I shouldn't be so harsh on my children, but... 
I know that we shouldn't be having sex, but... I know I should report this money on my taxes, but fill in the blank. I know I shouldn't be flirting with that guy at work, but I know I shouldn't be drinking too much of this or smoking any of that, but I know I shouldn't be watching this TV show, but... If you ever make those sorts of statements, listen to yourself. You are Saul. You know better and will do nothing about it and try to excuse it. I know I shouldn't be looking at this on the internet, but... Okay, fill in the blank on this one. In your own head. I know I shouldn't be, but I'd like the worship team and the prayer team to come up and point out a few more things. You have a problem. I have a problem. It's called sin. It comes out in a lot of ways, but the most common way it comes out is disobedience. You know what God expects in many areas of your life, and yet you excuse it. And so do I. So here's what you need to do. Acknowledge the two great theological truths. It's a place to start. There is a God. And that means he is sovereign. He has the right to rule. He has the right to call the shots in your life. He knows better than you do. There is a God and it's not you. That solves a whole lot of problems right there. Admit that you have been willfully disobedient. Admit that you have been saying, but... But for way too long, way too many times. And you ask God to forgive you. Acknowledge your sin and ask God to forgive you. That's the way out. So where's a good place to do that? You can do it where you're sitting. But you know what's even better? Coming up here. It'll cost you a little bit. What will people think if they see me up there? What horrible things will they imagine that I've been doing? We already suspect it anyway. (laughs) You're not fooling anybody. Yeah, it's on Facebook, right? (laughs) So come up here. If God's nudging you, if God, maybe it's more than a nudge. I hope it's more than a nudge. If you're feeling really uncomfortable, if I've been talking to you this morning, that's not me. That's God. God's putting his finger on something in your life, and it's like, do something about this. Stop making excuses. 
You want to be a Samuel? Or you want to be a Saul? Choose. You can't fix everything in your life, but you can fix one thing. You can pick one thing and deal with it this morning. And there are people up here who be very happy to talk with you and pray with you and support you. So, the worship team plays. You do, you do some business with God. You want to be a Samuel? Or you want to be a Saul?